episode 38 of the Tactical Breakdown Podcast. Today we're talking sleep, resiliency, and what it means to be a sheepdog. Here we go. Welcome to the Tactical Breakdown, a podcast for law enforcement, military, and emergency response professionals. Stand by. Where we help you bridge the gap and talk training, tactics, and leadership with the best subject matter experts in the world. Here is your host, Adam Kanakin. All right, we're back with episode 38 of the Tactical Breakdown. Of course, I'm your host, Adam Kanakin. Thank you so much for being here. Before we jump into this episode with Dave Grossman, I want to just really quickly remind everyone that the Instructor's Roundtable that we just held on April 30th was on active threat response and was an amazing turnout live um, and even more support from it afterwards. So if you haven't checked that out, make sure to do so. Um, you can go to the breakdown.ca forward slash IRT for more information on that. So what do we have lined up for you today on this episode? Well, I had the opportunity to interview Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman. If you don't know who he is, he's authored a few books on killing and on combat that are required reading for the U.S. Marine Corps as well as many other organizations. And he just released his newest book on spiritual combat that is available on Amazon and wherever else books are sold. And there's going to be links to that below in the show notes. So besides that, He's a notoriously hard guy to nail down, and I was so excited and honored that he took the time and we spent the afternoon discussing many, many topics. So this was an excerpt of our conversation that took place. I hope you enjoy the content. I hope you find something actionable out of it. There's going to be some gems in there that you may not have heard before, so I'm excited to bring those to you. And let's jump right into this episode with Dave. Here we go. All right, Dave, thank you so much for taking the time and joining me on the show, man. I, I'm honored to to have you be a part of our podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure, Adam. Truly my honor. You know, it's it really interesting with all of this stuff that's happening right now around the world with this pandemic. Um, it's it's interesting from an instructor perspective, because as instructors and trainers and people that host courses and go out and speak around the country and around the world, it's a change. It's a, the life life has changed for everybody. Nobody had all the courses get canceled. Nobody's bringing anybody in to speak or to train. Yeah. And the prevalence of podcasts is really, it's really going to grow. I think in the next couple months. And I know you're making yourself open to, to getting on these shows that normally you don't have time for. So thank you so much for, uh, for being on our thank show. You. Well, you know, I, I, I try to start every podcast by talking about two things, you know, number one, what a, what an enormous contribution you're doing by providing this podcast. I, I was on 60 Minutes, uh, and I was on 2020, you know, and, and CBC, and I'd done them all. And, and even when you get five, 10 minutes, which is an enormous amount of time on a radio or TV, it's nothing. It's a chance to, to touch and run on, and you realize that, that no depth of information. It was you're just spinning your wheels out here. But, but a podcast, you're able to dig in deep. I love these podcasts, and, and I uphold you as... Somebody going past the, you know, the guardians at the gate that controlled our knowledge and you're providing deeper knowledge and all your listeners out there, you're somebody seeking deeper knowledge. So I commend you. But secondly, I want to talk about law enforcement trainers. I retired from the Army uh, 23 years ago. It was uh, December 97. I'd had about 24 years in the Army and uh, 
my wife and I were was saying, you know, the army had offered me a couple of good jobs, but the, Clinton was president, the Cold War was over. We asked ourselves the question, how can we best use the gifts we've been given to touch the most lives? And it was obvious that that people need, wanted me to come train them. We never knew what it would come to. It's a leap of faith. But uh, but if you ask yourself that question, how can we best use the gifts we've been given to touch the most lives? So here it is all these years out on the road. And early on, a law enforcement trainer told me, so it must have been over 20 years ago. And, and he was a kind of a senior law enforcement trainer at the time. He said, uh, he said, I'm the coach. In a game, when we lose, people die. He said, he said, who wants to be the coach? If the team has a losing season, you fire the coach. Team has a winning season, the quarterback gets the credit. Uh, you know, and, uh, and in law enforcement, the coach don't make no more money. Who wants to do this job? Somebody who loves the players. Somebody who loves the game. Somebody who wants to make a difference. That, and I thought that was amazing, you know, this concept. And he, he, called, it, he called it the uh, conspiracy of competence. He said, all, you will find all the competent people in law enforcement gravitate to training and, uh, and special tactics SWAT teams. He said, you can go your entire military career, never make a decision. The guy on the beat calls the sergeant, you know, uh, uh, the chief assembles a committee. You can go your whole career and never make a decision except for two people. And that's a training guy. He's got to stand up on his hind legs in front of a bunch of fellow, you know, many, a lot of research says public speaking is the number one human phobia. And you got to overcome that phobia and stand up in front of your own people and, and accept responsibility. And, and that always stuck with me. And all you and all your listeners out there, you are truly the coach. And again, when we lose, people die. And right now, we're in the middle of some very trying times. So the, uh, the coronavirus quarantine and pandemic has just begun. We're in the early days. And as you well said, this, uh, our training opportunities are shutting down. And yet here you are as a podcaster going around and being available to everybody. When I was a kid, we'd have disasters and the ham radio guys would be doing all kinds of combo. The only combo still working in the middle of this disaster well, here we are kind of with the podcasters doing the same thing. It's such an honor to be on board. And what I'd like to talk to your listeners about today is resiliency. Uh, and the first step in resiliency, and it, being able to sustain what we do, is to know that you're sacrificed for a noble and worthy purpose. And, and number one, I, I want to talk to you about this, the quarantine, the coronavirus, and uh, theoretically uh, about 3% of the people who contract this disease are killed by it. You think 3% mortality rate, that's, that's not too bad, you know? It, it, it's true, but in America, 3% of 300 million people, 330 million, 3% is right at 10 million people that would potentially be killed, given that everybody contracts the disease, and, and especially if our medical system is overwhelmed, the numbers could go way up. And so, uh, uh, you know, the, the Bible says the good shepherd, and we're sheepdogs trying to protect our flock, the good shepherd leaves the 99 to rescue the one. And we are the 97 who are sacrificing for the three. And you know, three out of 100 doesn't sound like much until you start talking about 10 million dead people in America alone. So the sacrifice that we're making is for a good and noble purpose. And everybody's sacrificing for that, that 3%. It's a beautiful thing. But let's 
throttle back a little bit and talk about law enforcement and how much the world needs what you've got to give. And, and something critically, everybody in the law enforcement, wrap your mind around this, hang on to it, never let go of it. The situation is far, far worse than it looks. The way we measured, I'm, I'm, I teach cops in all 50 states across Canada. I teach every federal agency. I teach people we can't talk about. But I, I'm also the guest speaker, closing on 200 colleges and universities. And I like the, the criminal justice guest presenter. They're, they're CJ Day. All the criminal justice alumni, faculty, students, and they open it up to the local law enforcement and they fill up the auditorium. They turn me loose for a day. I tell them the first thing in criminal justice, understand that the entire area of academic study is totally flawed because we measure crime by murder. Oh, the murder rate's down, the murder rate's up. The murder rate completely misrepresents the situation because the docs are saving ever more lives. If we had World War II level medical technology in Afghanistan, we'd have at least 10 times made dead American troops. And the same thing's true in our streets. If we had Vietnam level medical technology in Iraq, we'd have at least four times many dead American troops. And the same thing is true in our streets. A major UMass Harvard study, peer-reviewed journal, irre irrefutable data. As of 2000, this data is 20 years old. As of 2000, if we had 1970s medical technology, the murder rate would be three to four times what it is. And that data is 20 years old. One medical expert tells me that tourniquets alone in the last decade have probably cut the murder rate in half. Cop slaps on a tourniquet, you're prevented a murder. Now, if, across America in these incredibly violent times, and not just cops carrying tourniquets, EMS and city, I got a tourniquet everywhere, you know, but if, if military veterans are carrying it, if just, if just 20 to 30 people a day slap on a tourniquet and save a life, we cut the murder rate in half. So we need to wrap our mind around the situation that, that the number of dead people completely underrepresented. I was invited to the White House last August to brief the vice president. And, and I told him, you know, we, we, I, I tried to explain this to him. We have, we have uh, um, inflation-adjusted dollars. Anytime we compare money over any period of time, we got to adjust for inflation or we're lying. Anytime we compare murders over any period of time, we got to allow for medical or we're lying. We need medically adjusted murder rate. And when we start doing that, it will absolutely transform our civilization. In all my classes, I throw up the Canadian murder rate. I throw up the American murder rate. And, and in the last three years, it has exploded like nothing we've ever seen before. And people don't even know it. And the other thing to understand how bad the situation is and how desperately the world needs what we got to give is law enforcement officers murdered in the line of duty. Every day, cops have better training, better tactics, better body armor. Uh, and, 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 and we have that medical technology holding down the number of dead cops. So the, the only good assessment is what I call the year-over-year -year increase in cops murdered. And in America, of course, we, we, you, you, had, uh, you had the mass murder of four Mounties in, uh, in, in, uh, in Merthorpe. And in, uh, in, 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 we had five cops murdered in a single incident in Dallas, four cops murdered in a single incident in Baton Rouge. And every place you see a multiple homicide of cops, I will show you many, many where they tried and failed. It is not easy to kill a bunch of cops. The ones who succeed in mass murder of cops are, are the exception. So... 
2016 is the single worst year-over-year increase in cops murdered in American history. So things are bad. But here's the thing. The worse it gets, the more determined we are to give it all we got. I'm 63 years old. I've been doing this for 23 years. It's my prayer I can do it for another 20 years. I'm on the road truly over 200 days a year for 23 years. Waiting at home for me is my bride of, uh, of 44 years. Come July, I'll be 45 years. She's my high school sweetheart. She was 15. I was 17 when I proposed to her. We, I tell people we are from Arkansas. Two years later, she married a crazy army paratrooper. Been in this ride with me for 44 years. I love her more than life itself. I get home one, maybe two nights a week. Conjugal visit, clean underwear, back on the road. Because you see, the only people more precious than my bride are, are my grandchildren. And we believe as we love our children, as we love our nation, as we love our grandchildren, as we love our God, we got to walk out that door and give 100%. And the worse it gets, the more determined we are to give it all we got. Does that make sense? Absolutely, it does. I actually, yeah. um, I don't write a lot. I <laughs> Writing isn't my thing. Obviously, I'm the talker. But yeah. uh, I wrote a little blurb on LinkedIn um, a little while back. And it was all about what what keeps you in the fight, and I, yep. I made a I made a comment in that, or I, what I wrote about was how when you step out and you go to work, what what keeps you in that fight? You know, it's it doesn't matter how much training you have. It does. I mean, it it does affect it to some degree, but I mean, it's it's where's your mind at? Yes. You know, when I step out the door, I'm coming home to my wife and kids, yes. and that's that's it for me. So I'm gonna do whatever I have to do to to accomplish that. Yeah. And and I'm comfortable with that reality. Yes. I'm comfortable if I get put in a situation and it's me or them, it's going to be me a thousand percent of the time. Oh. Or at least I'm going to do everything in my power to yeah. attain that result. Yeah. You know, when, when we talk about motivation, love is the greatest motivation on the planet. And, and we're, we're sacrificing. When you chose to be a cop, when you chose to go in the military, it chose a life of sacrifice. You're never going to get rich in this business, at least not legally. Never going to get famous celebrity, at least not in a good way. When you chose military law enforcement uh, uh, first responder, you chose a life of sacrifice. And you must believe your sacrifice for a noble and worthy purpose. And, and you've got those little ones at home. I got those grandkids at home. We strive to create a better world for them. I tell people, you go home and you look your children, your grandchildren in the eye, you swear by all that's holy that our legacy to them will not be darkness, death, and despair. That we will not be the generation that fails to pass on to our children all the blessings bestowed upon us by our forefathers. I tell people now, don't you cop a pity party on us here. You think it's bad? It's bad. And it's, it's going to get worse. But there have been other bad times. You know, in 1812, they burned Washington to the ground. The Civil War we killed Surratt by hundreds of thousands. Uh, the living hell of the trenches of World War One. Uh, you know, the dead in World War Two, the Cold War. You know, it, it, there have been other hard times. We made it through those hard times because uh, sheepdogs, warriors, uh, stood up and sacrificed. And it's our turn to sacrifice. It's our turn to give 100% because we love our children. We love our way of life, and we want to... We want to give them a better world than we've got 
or at least <laughs> as good as we've got to pass on those sustaining factors. And, uh, and, and the more desperate it gets, the more, the more determined we are to do things. So the first step in resiliency is motivation, is, is what I call an internal locus of control. Identify all the things you can't control and let go of them. Turn them over to higher power. You know, maybe later we'll talk about spirituality as, as an aspect of resiliency. And, and one of the four pillars of resiliency in the armed forces in America, one of the four pillars is spirituality. The, the data sheet's coming up over and over again. Some kind of a higher power that you can give things to. Give it over to the higher power. Let go of this stuff. The, the global level, you can't do nothing about it. The, 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 the local level, there's only one thing in the universe you can control. It's yourself right now. There is nothing, nothing, nothing we can control except ourselves. And if we give way to bitterness, if we give way to cynicism or complacency or denial, that's the one thing of the world you can control. And you've given the world a victory with your own hand. And we will not give them that victory. And so the, the, when I talk about resiliency, it's, the first step is motivation. The second step is motivation turned into action. Uh, identify the things you do. The Bible says faith without works is dead. Motivation without action is not truly motivation. Identify the things you can do, and that's training and preparation and equipment. But I want to spend a few minutes here talking about the elephant in the living room, which is uh, sleep deprivation. Right now, we're in the early stages of this uh, pandemic uh, and uh, quarantine, and and uh, we've got first responders going 100 miles an hour. We've got people at home doing nothing. And they both face the same challenge as sleep deprivation. Now, we know that sleep deprivation is one of the greatest predictors of suicide. And worldwide suicides have exploded. Teen suicides have exploded. Tweenagers, call them tweenagers, 10, 11, 12-year-old. Tweenage girls' suicide rate in America has tripled per capita in just the last decade. So if you have kids, you have tween, tween age kids, you should be scared sick about suicide. It's exploded. It's a major killer. It, one of the major killers of our kids today. And in the military, we study every suicide intensely. And in the U.S. military, our suicides have nothing to do with combat. A non-combat vet is as likely to take the life as a combat vet. But a sleep-deprived soldier can be up to five times more likely to take their life. And here's the key. Taking your life is not a natural act. Every living creature will fight to the last breath for, to preserve their life. The, 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 the self-preservation is woven into our genes. To take your life, to commit suicide, you have to have profoundly impaired judgment. Alcohol and suicide have always been related. Alcohol creates impaired judgment. You make a bad decision, never get a chance to rethink it. For the most pervasive form of impaired judgment is sleep deprivation. Now, burn this into your neurons, everybody, and don't let go of it. 18 hours without sleep, and your impaired judgment equal to 0.08 legally drunk. 24 hours without sleep, your impaired judgment at, at 0.10 above legally drunk. Two nights without sleep, and you are psychotic. Any graduate of Army Ranger School I tell you about hallucinations on the third day without sleep. And we're in the <laughs> middle of a worldwide epidemic of sleep deprivation. And it is a factor, the new factor, in a worldwide epidemic of suicides, teen suicides, twin-age suicides. So here's, here's parenting 101 for the 21st century. When you send your kid to bed at night, 
take their cell phone away from them. No cell phone in the room, no laptop in the room. They have got to go to the room and sleep. A cop came up to me and break one of my classes one time. He said, I had a good girl. I thought, what, he had a good girl? He said, I had a good girl. She was an A student. She said, Dad, it's embarrassing. You don't have to take my cell phone every night. You can trust me. He said, so I trust her. Let her keep her cell phone. He said, a little while later, she took her life. He said, my little girl took her life. And we never knew the hell she was living in until we looked at the text messages on her cell phone. Night after night of ceaseless, relentless, vicious bullying. He said, I knew my little girl was bullied to death. What I didn't understand until now was she was sleep deprived, tormented and bullied to death in front of my eyes, and I let it happen. He said, I can't ignore that text message in the middle of the night. How can we expect our kids to? He said, the one thing on earth I could have done for her was take her cell phone every night, let her turn off all the bad stuff in this world. And, and, and so just recognize how this sleep deprivation is destroying us, the cell phones, the text messaging, and especially the video games. So sleep deprivation is a key factor in suicides and traffic deaths. Decade after decade, worldwide, traffic deaths have been coming down. Airbags, seatbelts, medical technology. And now we see traffic deaths coming back up again. What is the new factor? There's a reason why truck drivers and airline pilots and dozens of other professions are required by law get enough sleep. If I were king or could pass one law, I would mandate sleep for all first responders, like airline pilots and air traffic controllers, nuclear power plant operators, tugboat operators, ferryboat operators, Amtrak engineers, and a dozen other professions required by law get enough sleep. But the people who make life and death first responder decisions aren't, that should enrage us. So if we wouldn't have enough, then hire more and pay more, and we will. We're, we're, we're rich nations. When things are wrong, we throw money at it. And we've just begun to throw money at this problem. When people understand how bad it is that murder rates exploded, and uh, they, we're going to throw money at that problem. And the person who decides whether or not to shoot your kid should be the best trained, best qualified, best paid guy on the planet. So this sleep deprivation is killing us. And there's two dynamics that we need to establish right up front. Number one, sleep is a biological blind spot. Our bodies are incompetent at making us get enough sleep because it always happened naturally. For untold thousands of years throughout human history, every night, without fail, it got dark. And there was nothing to do. It was dark. You have so much talking, so much sex, you roll over and you went to sleep. But then Tommy Edison invented the light bulb and the television, the video game. Suddenly we have to go 24-7 and our bodies don't know how to make us get enough sleep. Our bodies are good at getting their food, right? Think how good the body is to get the right amount of food. How much extra food would a kid have to eat to put on one extra pound a month? If a kid puts on one extra pound a month, by the time he's 10, he's 120 pounds overweight. So as we get older, it gets harder. But our bodies are good at getting their food and water. But sleep is a biological blind spot. You've got to manage your sleep like you manage your money. If I were king and could get every cop one present, I'd give him a Fitbit Charge 3. I think Fitbit's doing the best job. The Charge 3 is, uh, is waterproof, wear it in the shower, wear it in the tub. It's a little band you wear on your wrist and you download an app for your cell phone. It will track your heart rate. It's amazing to see how your heart rate varied throughout the day. I did this, I did that, and my heart rate was here, it was there. 
It will track your steps and your calories, and it will track your sleep and your cycles of sleep, and it will rock your world. And it will tell you, you need at least eight, minimum seven hours of sleep a day. And for the last two months, you've been getting five hours of sleep a day, and you can't keep doing this. Sleep deprivation takes years off our life, and, and, and it makes us have bad quality life. We're not the cop we want to be. We're not the spouse we want to be. We're not the parent we want to be when we're sleep deprived. Sleep deprived people will do things and say things we'll regret for the rest of their lives. So understand, sleep's a biological blind spot. We've got to manage our sleep. They get that Fitbit Charge 3 or, or the Apple Watch. You got the Apple Watch, get the sleep app, download the app on your cell phone and track your sleep and manage your sleep. But for a lot of us, that's awful hard. So let me give you some nuggets of info. Now, now this, understand that there's so many distractions right now, and one of them are the video games. And there is nothing wrong with adults playing any video game. But you've got to understand, these games are designed to be impossible to turn off. Right now, 200 million people are online playing games. We do this, and 0.05% oh, good time to quit the games. We'll never do that again. We do this, absolutely nobody quits. We do more of that. They really are designed with a constant interactive computer-driven algorithm to have the best flicker rate, plot, screen, color, dynamic, that the game is impossible to turn off. All the old-timers, some of the old-timers out there remember Tetris. I tell them, think of Tetris on steroids with crack. And each generation gets more immersive and more addictive. And, and there's, they put us in what's called a flow state. We become incapable of keeping track of time. Suddenly, it, it's three o'clock in the morning. Got no idea where the last six hours went. Got to go to work in three hours, and your spouse is sincerely ticked off. Research tells us video games are responsible for 15% of all divorces in America. Google video game divorce, come right up, 15%. Somewhere along the line, the spouse says, What's more important, that game or your family? Ha, that's easy. Divorce. The game's more important. So so play that game, but set a timer. Block out an hour every night. Escape. Ding, the timer goes off. Use your steely war disp and drive on. People say, wah, 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 wah. I play a major, massive, metamorphic, online orgasmic game. You can't do anything an hour a night. Okay, it's cool, it's cool. I tell them, decide now what's important. Is your oath as a peace officer important? Is your vow of marriage important? Your family important? Your nation important? Your fellow officers important? Or is the game important? Decide now. So if that game is what's really important, quit your job right now. Move into your parents' basement. Draw unemployment. Buy a giant economies bag of Cheetos. Play video games all night long. Millions of people are doing that. But you want to uphold your oath as a law enforcement officer, your vow of marriage, your responsibility to your family and your nation? You got to get those games under control. I tell that to military and law enforcement classes, and I can see them look at me like a like like the deer in the headlights, and you're talking to me, man. And I said, that's okay. Nobody ever told you that. You honestly didn't know it. It was a social blind spot. But now you know, and you cannot deny it. You know dang well I'm right, and we can't keep working that way. And so this is a social blind spot. We got a biological blind spot, a social blind spot. But let me give you some, your listeners, some nuggets of info we can cover right now. Quick and dirty. Number one, sleep 101 begins with nap 101. Naps are a friend. Naps are good. But a minimum nap is 30 minutes. 
It, it takes about 20 minutes. He begin to fall into deep cycle sleep. Just get a few minutes of deep cycle sleep. You got to shoot for 30. Anything 30 minutes is not a good nap. It's a minimum nap. Anything less than 30 minutes is pretty much a waste of time. So you're driving down the road, your head is bobbing. Taking little, little micro naps. We've all been there. The little micro naps, your head is bobbing. Pull over. Set the alarm for 10 minutes. The alarm goes off, kind of a startle response. But as far as sleep deprivation goes, that 10 minute nap was a total waste of time. Put your head down for 30 minutes. The alarm goes off. You're bleary and you're groggy. You don't want to get up. You know why? Because you're asleep. It takes 30 minutes to fall solid, deep cycle. I don't want to get back to minute sleep. And anything less than that's pretty much a waste of time. So here's the key. Something you do right now. That means the snooze alarm is not our friend. The snooze alarm is always set for about 10 minutes because that's just enough time to get that startle response. The snooze alarm is an evil little button that makes you relive the worst part of every day over and over again. And I am deadly serious. You will rock your world by never touching that snooze alarm again. Just Google snooze alarm and look at the research. You are doing psychological, physical harm to your body with the snooze alarm. It's like you're trying to train your body to take 10-minute naps. And it can't do it. Your body will turn itself inside out, trying to fall into deep sexual sleep in 10 minutes, and it can't do it. But one, one of the worst forms of torture on the planet is sleep deprivation. Waking somebody up every 10 minutes is one of the worst tortures on the planet. At the end of three days, you are a destroyed human being. The snooze <laughs> alarm is an instrument of torture. But it goes you know, further than that. And, and and real 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 yeah. quick, Dave, yeah. uh, just before we, we jump into that, because uh, I, I do want to, it's funny that you say sleep deprivation from in my head while you're, while you're talking about sleep deprivation, I'm like, I got three kids under three and I, all I, all, what I always joke with my wife about, I'm like, I'm so glad that the government spent lots and lots of money training me to work without sleep. Yes. <laughs> and, and like for what you had said, I mean, you know, you go back to, to training and I mean, in, in the infantry, it's obviously a lot different than, and some of the other trades and stuff like that. But I mean, sleep deprivation for those of us who have been in, in the military understand, you understand what sleep deprivation is. And like you said, you've seen those guys that hallucinate and, and it's, it can be very entertaining at times, but I mean, two things that you had touched on there. Um, one tracking your sleep, which I think was really, really interesting. I do that. I have a, I have a, a gear, a gear fit, actually not a Fitbit, but shout out to Fitbit. I'm going to reach out to them and and get a, see if we get a sponsorship. And, uh, but, uh, but what the other thing that you had said was, and I wanted to track back on this kind of before we forgot was with the officers and the, the lack of sleep that they're getting um, and, and having to perform their duties because of what we're in right now with this pandemic and the overtime is going to be at an all time high. The, the requirement of officers is going to be at an all time high where I mean, I feel like we're going to be facing some massive, massive issues when you have organizations and agencies and chiefs telling officers, like, even if you're sick, we want you to come into work, which is just what happened in Chicago. Yeah. You know, like, so can we can we touch on that real quick? Yeah. Yeah. And you really cut a, a critical point. We cannot train our body to get by unless sleep. Well, what we do is we can psychologically empower ourselves. You know, uh, uh, ranger school went days without food. And my, I didn't train my body to go without food. I, I can go without food. I can miss a meal. I can go a day without food and never miss a lick. I, I, I think the intermittent fasting is one of the best weight loss programs for me 
because I'll just pick a day and don't eat that day. And a lot of people, yeah, and I ate for a day. They just come unglued. <laughs> That's all in your freaking head. Your body's not been trained. You, you, you can't train your body to get by unless food, but you can psychologically equip yourself to go without food and the world keeps turning. So you understand, physically, you can't train your body to get by on less food or less sleep. Psychologically, if you're without food and without sleep, you, you can keep driving on. I've been here before. I've done this before. But you've got to overcome that myth that you can train your body to get by on less sleep. Uh, and, and it's critical that we try to maintain our sleep. And again, you have young children. It gets hard. But let me give you some nuggets you people can start applying right now as on this sleep deprivation. Number one, remember naps. But minimum nap. 30 minutes. Try to block out that uninterrupted time. Number two, don't touch the snooze alarm. 10 minutes snooze, another snooze, a third snooze. You just threw away 30 minutes of your life. Those three snoozes, no value as far as sleep goes. You and anybody in the room with you, then no value as far as your life goes. I will teach you a trick that'll put 30 minutes of quality sleep back in every day. That adds up to three and a half hours sleep back in every week. Two pure, beautiful nights sleep back in every month. 24 nights sleep back in every year. Set the alarm a half hour later and get the hell out of bed. And, and we can do that. And it comes back one last thing. Are you in charge of your body or your body in charge of you? Is the first act of every day to surrender to your body and hit this newsline? Or is the first act of every day to take charge and roll out of bed? Muhammad Ali, a boxer, great champion. He said, championship began every morning the alarm went up. He hated running so bad, he put his running shoes on top of the alarm. He hit the alarm and he grabbed his running shoes. That's champion willpower. Am I in charge of my body? My body in charge of me. Give your kid a, a marshmallow. Let me eat this marshmallow right now. I'll be back in three minutes with another one. You don't need it. Get them both. That is the single greatest predictor to success in life. More than IQ. And you cannot change your IQ. You cannot change your kid's IQ by much. But you can change your willpower, your self-discipline starting right now. Set your cell phone. You got to get up tomorrow morning at six. Set 20 alarms all over for six o'clock. Six o'clock, six o'clock, six o'clock, six o'clock. By the time you turn them all off, you're up. And the you that goes to bed at night, it's going to make you get up in the morning, get out of bed. And you begin to rock your world right now, starting tonight, but not touching that snooze alarm. Uh, and, and set 20 alarms if you have to for the time to get up. Now, number two, the dark is our friend. You may not get one more minute of sleep. You must sleep in as dark a room as humanly possible. I'm a huge science geek. My favorite website is sciencedaily.com. I check it every day through almost every category. And, and they had major study in the sleep lab. Totally dark room. Bathroom light is on and the door is shut. The light coming under the crack of the bathroom door is enough light to stop your body from producing the melatonin that you need. We're designed to sleep in total darkness. Make the room as dark as you can and get a sleep mask. In the military, we passed out the sleep mask by the fistful to everybody. It looked like the Lone Ranger without the eye holes. Get online. Try a couple different ones. See which one works for you. I just did a little blurb to my Facebook page on the ones I like in, on, uh, on, on sleep masks. But, but make the room as dark as possible. And, and, and you will begin to rock your world starting the night and teach your children to sleep in the dark. Babies are sloshing with melatonin. Babies can sleep anywhere. As we get older and older, the body produces less and less melatonin. By the time we become teenagers, it's really important that they're sleeping in a, in a totally dark room. 
Sleep deprivation is killing our kids. The three major killers for our kids have all exploded. Suicide, traffic deaths, and drug overdoses. And sleep deprivation and impaired judgment is a key factor in all of those. So, so yeah, sleep in a totally dark room. You've been to Rocky World starting tonight. Uh, uh, alcohol is not our friend. Nothing wrong with a nightcap. One beer, one glass of wine on the way to bed. Nothing wrong with that. But pound down three beers. Wear your Fitbit. Go to bed. See what it does to your sleep. You'll fall quickly into shallow sleep. You wake up in a couple hours and can't get back to sleep. Don't, don't use alcohol to put yourself to sleep. Nothing wrong with a nightcap, anything more than one drink. Don't wake up in the middle of the night and have a smoke. This is the one time to show some discipline. But caffeine can be our friend if we're not abusing it on a daily basis. You have a double shift. You have extended operations. Caffeine is there, caffeine is there for you. If you haven't been abusing it with mega doses every day, you, you need a quadruple shot latte to get you going in the morning, a 64 ounce big gulp Mountain Dew to carry you through the morning, another quadruple shot latte, and a six pack of Rock Bowl Star Monster. And if you drinks after lunch, you're abusing the drug. We've all seen crackheads and meth heads who are mainlining the drug and getting nothing out of it except barely staying normal. That's what's happened to a lot of people with caffeine. This incredibly valuable drug is not there for you because you've been abusing it. It is truly addictive in many ways. And when you pound down those mega doses, you're just building your addiction. So take the challenge. Cut off all caffeine for one day. If you get any withdrawal symptoms, headaches, shakes, digestion problems, irritability, if you get any withdrawal symptoms, just live and prove you're abusing the drug when you need it will not be there for you. So taper off, taper off slowly. And here's the key. The half-life of caffeine in our body is about five hours. That means the caffeine you took at 5 p.m. is still a half drink when you go to bed at 10 p.m. And it's making us have bad quality sleep. Guard your sleep. Protect your sleep. Sleep is a little vacation that waits at the end of every day. And caffeine is the enemy of good sleep. Caffeine doesn't make you not sleep. Caffeine makes it easier to stay awake, harder to have quality sleep. And again, chronic pain. Sleep deprivation creates chronic pain. The muscles and tendons never fully relax. Back to the opiate epidemic. Doc, I heard all the time, give me a pill to fix. You don't need a pill, you need more sleep. And you need to knock off the caffeine shortly after lunch because it's preventing you from getting deep cycle sleep. And those tendons and muscles never fully relax. So cut off caffeine shortly after lunch. Smack yourself, do whatever you need to. And you will start seeing good quality sleep. You'll start seeing that deep cycle sleep. These are things you can start doing tonight to manage your caffeine. And, and the source of caffeine is really important. The data keeps stacking up. Those sodas are sugary poison. One soda a day is not going to kill us like one candy bar a day. If you only form a hydration of sodas, like your only form of nutrition was candy bars. And that diet sodas may be worse. One diet soda is not going to kill us if that's your only form of hydration. If your blood type is Diet Coke, you got a problem. And the energy drinks are condensed poison. And everybody needs to know this. This is critical survival data. We've been at war for 19 years. For the first 15 years, the U.S. Armed Forces passed out energy drinks like water by the pallet. They gave us, we gave them to the troops. Aren't we nice guys? And then two major Department of Defense-wide study on the energy drinks. And for all practical purposes across the U.S. Armed Forces, there's a complete ban on issuing energy drinks. All there is in that energy drink is a mega dose of caffeine 
and some stuff that will make you metabolize it quickly and become far more addicted to it. It's far more addictive in that condensed form. It will give you a one-hour burst of physical ability before a PT test, before an athletic event. One energy drink's not a bad idea, but then you crash. Second one feels good for 10 minutes. All you're doing is building the addiction. Third one feels good for five minutes. All you're doing is reinforcing this addiction. And, and in an academic environment, the one take most energy drinks are the ones who are the worst grades. In a tactical environment, the one take most energy drinks are the ones most like to nod off on the job. Please, there's two really good sources of caffeine, coffee and tea, that appear to be very good for us. Coffee drinkers across the board are living several years longer than non-coffee drinkers. Now, I think that's because they're not putting that other stuff in their body, and it's so bad for you. But three or four normal cups of coffee or tea a day are very good for us. Cup or two of coffee or tea at breakfast. Cup or two of coffee or tea at lunch. Then switch to decaf, have all you want. And then when you need it, emergency operations, extended operations, it'll be there for you. So pace yourself for the long game, folks. Sleep deprivation takes years off our life makes us have bad quality lives. Starting tonight, don't touch that snooze alarm. Set a dozen alarms by that time and turn them all off, you're up. Make the room as dark as you can. Get online and order a sleep mask and see which ones work for you. And 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 don't, alcohol's not our friend. Nicotine's not our friend. Don't use alcohol to put you to sleep. Nothing wrong with the nightcap anymore than one drink, so get a negative effect. And start using caffeine effectively. And don't let yourself become addicted with these constant megadoses. And it will be there for us when we need it. And pace yourself for the long game, folks. We need four-quarter players. We need seasoned players. Sleep deprivation is destroying us. It's taking years off our life. It's making us have bad quality life. And that's one area right now where we can make major difference. Are you with me so far? 100%. And it's really interesting, well, too, because I'm I'm starting to, to draw connections with um, like when we talk about officers being out on patrol and now we're talking about them being sleep deprived and they're going to try to combat yep. that with yes. some type of energy, whether it be energy yeah. drinks or, or whatever it is, um, you know, caffeine pills. I mean, there's a million different things right. that they can take, yep. but now we start talking about they're they're still having to do the same job that they've always done, which includes these potential deadly force incidents that they, they get involved with. And now yes. you have um, surges of these drugs, caffeine or anything else surging through your body, which is going to immediately affect your body's ability to react correctly to these life or death situations. Amen. Amen. So yeah, appropriate use of this drug, like any drug, it can become destructive. It can be there for us if we use it appropriately. Uh, and, and that's something all of us could make a difference starting right now. But the other area, well, we might be able to make a difference. And again, spirituality is a major factor in resiliency. Uh, my most recent book came out a little over a year ago. It's called Bulletproof Marriage, a 90-day devotional. And it's five minutes a day, sheepdog and spouse, military, first responders, uh, law enforcement, really anybody who knows there's, 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 there's wolves out there and just want to guide their flock to safety. Anybody who, who is a sheepdog, and not all sheepdogs are in that job. Uh, the, the book is incredibly valuable. And look it up on Amazon. I think we're right at 99 reviews with five stars on Amazon. You know, five stars on Amazon is like a 4.0 GPA. Right? One B, and you never get it back again. But, uh, but we're really locking lives with this book, Bulletproof Marriage, 90-Day Devotional. But the next book coming out on the 5th of May 
my most important book I think I've ever done is on spiritual combat. You know, that anybody who's been in law enforcement will tell you there is evil in this world. There is evil. There is a force for evil. How can you deny it? And yet they don't want to believe there's a force for good in this world. And you got to recognize there's some higher power out there that's a force for good that can carry us through these things. And how do you suppose the military justifies chaplains in this day and age? So whatever your faith you might have out there, just consider leveraging that as, as a resource to carry you through these times and, uh, and to turn to those things in our hour of need. And they really can sustain us. The research is out there. Uh, there are certain things we can be doing right now and, and, you know, tapping into that stuff with the spouse, you know, 90 day devotional, uh, bulletproof marriage on spiritual combat, kind of outlines the big picture that we, in the end, we're not fighting. We're fighting against forces of evil in this world. And, and we can't win that battle without some kind of a force for good on our side. And so uh, uh, we live in dark and desperate times, and those who, uh, who are putting on the line for us, we, we, we just want to try to help them any way we can. And, and, and you're being held up in prayer by millions of people, and whether you know it or not, let that, let that prayer kind of sustain you. Know that people are out there and praying for you and hoping for you. You know, uh, uh, the polls tell us across America, across the world, law enforcement and military is still two of the most respected institutions without fail. Now, the cop haters have been empowered, and they're in an echo chamber that reinforces that. But the vast majority of our citizens strongly support law enforcement and are standing behind you and holding you up in prayer daily. Uh, and, and you believe in what you're doing. And the worse it gets, the more determined we are to give it all we got out there. You know, if you had a few minutes uh, uh, on somebody else's podcast to cover what you think is the most important thing, what would it be? For me, it's all fun and games to talk about the tactical stuff, um, yeah. which, yeah. I mean, we all love to do, right? I mean, it's it's fun yeah. to talk yeah. about going to the range. It's fun to talk about different types of tactics, whether it be CQB, CQC, whatever you're talking about, yep. uh, undercover work, those types of things. But sure. like you had, there's there's two things. One, you had referenced the the amount of officer line of duty deaths. The other yeah. thing that's a strikingly high number um, is that officer suicides is larger yes. than the line of duty deaths. And oh, yes. well, that's, right. that's the one thing that I've been really just lately been really trying to champion with, with bringing to the forefront. I mean, there's a lot of people doing a lot of amazing work um, and I'm nowhere close to, to some of the no. people when it comes to, to getting the information yep. out there. But I think when we, we, every time that I do one of these interviews, one of the things that really strikes me is that it doesn't matter what we're talking about. Some, in some way, shape or form, we always kind of circle back to mental health in some way, shape or form. And I think it's, yep. it's one of those yep. things that is being talked a lot about now, but needs to be worked into training. It has to be worked into instructor training and the instructors that have these officers right from the academy level all the way up through in-service and specialty training. It has to be something that's ingrained in the instructor to always touch on every single time. Every time you get a touch point with somebody, it has to be reinforced. Um, that's if I picked yes. one thing, that would be it. And, and again, the two major killers for cops are suicide and traffic deaths. And the key factor we can start doing right now, if we gave a damn about it, 
it would be sleep management. I tell you with all my heart and soul, the one area we make a change right now and, and little things like I said, you know, the totally dark room, uh, this news alarm, little things we start doing tonight that can rock our world. And so, uh, and again, when you come back to that whole emotional side of it, uh, the, the spirituality side of that, whatever degree you might have a, a foundation of whatever your faith may be or your foundation is a, may be leaning back on that foundation in dark times really, really can sustain us. And as we go through these, uh, these tragic times of this quarantine, this coronavirus, the, uh, the difficulties that lay in front of us, uh, our sheepdogs out there are the ones that are holding back the tide of darkness and, uh, they got to believe in what they're doing and we got to give them all the tools that we can give them to survive. And, and that, you know, the simple things we do right now begins with sleep, things you'd be doing tonight. Uh, and, uh, and, and I just come back around full, full cycle. So incredible people who are taking their time to listen to this podcast, incredible people are taking their time to put this together. Uh, there are bad things in this world, but there are causes that we can turn around and say, you know, there's some good things happening out there. Let this be a time when we get back with our families. Let this be a time when we cook a meal at home and we eat at home and we talk over the dinner table. Let this be a time when we take our kids outside. Whatever free time you have, if you're going to spend family time, think about doing it outside. Man wrote a book called Last Child in the Woods. He coined the term nature deficit disorder. We need nature. We need to be outside. We need trees around us. Green space around us predicts our mental well-being. And getting in the green space even makes it better. Uh, build your kid a tree fort, you know, and put climbing rocks, uh, you know, just, just uh, screw climbing rocks onto the, onto, the, onto the tree and build them a tree fort. We got one in our backyard. Our grandkids are both in high school now. The, the tree fort days are over, but wow, what a joy it was to have this little rope coming down. And, and you know, they, they did some research, and it's just solid research, that, that you, can, you can predict the academic success of students by the number of trees around their school, even after they factored out social economic, factor out every other variable, the number of trees around the school was one of the greatest predictors of the academic success. So let this be a time when we can get refocused on the things we can be doing. Don't get lost in that video game when you could be spending time out time with the kids. Don't get lost in the latest news when you could be spending time talking over a meal, turn it all off and have a family dinner and talk over dinner and, and, and let this be a time of healing and, and positive things that we can do with the time we have available to us. And, uh, and if you're one of those responders out there putting the line through this dark hour, if you're somebody listening to this podcast, seeking greater depth of knowledge, uh, I thank you with all my heart and soul for putting it on the line first. Thank you for going to harm's way every day. Thank you for taking violent people off the street at the price of your blood and your lives. Thank you for for, for, for manning the ramparts, for answering the summons of the trumpet, to standing in the gap in a dark and desperate hour. Uh, we need you more than we've ever needed you before. you got to believe in who you are and what you do. Absolutely. If I mean, I want, one of the things I did want to ask you about too, um, and, and this kind of goes into kind of the more of the higher level, from a command perspective, with all of the stuff that's happening with the coronavirus and like things that like are happening um, in certain places, it, it's more so in the U.S. that's kind of getting headlines where you have certain certain areas, cities saying that hey, we're we're not enforcing certain laws at this time. To yeah. hey, we yeah. have you know we're forcing our officers to come to work regardless if you're sick or not. All these different types of things. Cool. What's the responsibility from a command level to to ensure that we're doing things correctly? 
so that the so that society doesn't basically blow up. Yeah, this is one of the things that I cover. You know, uh, um, I, I tell people what's new is is we're in a zero defects environment. Uh, the airlines are in zero defects. The airlines cannot crash a single plane. Oh, come on, you know. 10,000 traffic accidents a day, 30,000 traffic deaths a year. One airline crash a day is reasonable. No. One airline crash a year. No. One every 10 years. No. You cannot crash a single plane. You cannot let a single passenger be sucked out the window. We will, we will fine you. We will investigate you. We might fire you. might even put you in jail. That's what zero defects looks like. Well, law enforcement is now in a zero defects environment, just like the airlines. We can't afford to have a single person walk out that door and do something stupid. So whenever I get in a plane, I know if they didn't have a rested crew, they canceled the flight. And when we talk about performance in the zero defects environment, it comes back around to sleep. Just like, a, you know, if they don't have a rested crew, they canceled the flight. I'm good with that. Better, better no plane than a tired pilot. You know, we're going to hit the point where we need to say better no cop than a tired cop. Some airline executive says, I don't care if that pilot's tired. Keep flying that flight. <laughs> if something happens, that guy's going to jail. And I think in our law enforcement leadership community, if we if, if we push that envelope, if we put people who are sick on the streets, especially now, if we keep driving people who are sleep deprived on the streets and bad things happen, I think we're going to hit a time when the chain of command can and must be held accountable for those kind of things. And we've got to be able to set up a sentinel. My cops are sleep deprived. And if we put them out there now, they're going to do bad stuff. They're like airline pilots. And better no plane than a tired pilot. Better no cop than a tired cop. And, and we've got to recognize that. The time is coming, and the sooner the better, when the leadership is held accountable for these kind of training failures and, and management failures. And we've got to start putting that point that finger up upwards and, and holding them accountable. And they're good people. They're doing the best they can. When they begin to realize this is an issue, when you give them the necessary guidelines, they'll do what needs to be done. It's all about connecting the dots. And, uh, and the greatest missing piece out there is this fatigue and sickness and uh, sustainment over the long haul, sleep management. Uh, this is the cutting edge. You know, I, I'm a huge fan of force-on-force engagements and state-of-the-art stress inoculation. But it all begins with starting with a healthy body. If you're sleep-deprived, if you're, if you're, if you're, if you're food-deprived, if, if, if bad things are happening in your world and you go to this training, then the negative dynamics are going to be reinforced. You know, when we talk about my, my, my degrees in psychology, I taught at West Point. But before you do any kind of counseling, the first thing you do is say, when's the last time you had a meal? When was the last time you had a good night's sleep? Because all of the psychology, all of the counseling on the planet is not doing any dang good if their body's primary need right now is for food or sleep. And when you do this whiz-bang high-speed training, the first thing you're going to do is make sure their body is prepared. We just assume they showed up not sleep-deprived and well and with good nutrition. But that assumption no longer holds up. And start checking on those kind of things as the foundation. If the body's not healthy. All of your whiz-bang training is just wasted. Indeed, it can become counterproductive if, if you haven't taken care of the biological needs first, and then everything else builds on top of that. I mean, when we talk about training and we talk about effectiveness of training, 
where where do you see that going right now for for both law enforcement and the military? I mean, you're you get called in to consult with the you know with JSOC with the U.S. military with you yeah. know all the law enforcement agencies. Where where is that going right now? Is there anything right now that you see that's going to oh. really take us to the next level? Yeah. There are two major things that I tell everybody. I think we've learned in 19 years of war. And the first one is, and this is huge, if it works in the Olympics, if it works in the Super Bowl, it works and somebody's trying to kill you. So this is big. You know, I was uh, as West Point psych professor in the early 1990s. They said, you're, you're our smart guys. You have brand new shiny degrees. Uh, give us smart stuff, man. Give us the latest stuff. And we said, we'll get it right to the generals. We said, look at all this performance psychology. Look at all this sports psychology. We got to use this stuff in combat. The generals, older and wiser heads, had a good answer. No. Just because it works in some stupid game doesn't mean it works in combat. We didn't know. And there was a ban on sports psychology, performance psychology in the battlefield. Well, in 19 years of war, we've systematically experimented, and we can tell you it works. That means we can strip mine the multi-trillion dollar field of performance psychology and apply it to the battlefield. In one of my favorite books, a, a Canadian couple, uh, 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 Linda Miller and, and Keith Cunningham, they run Milcom Training Center up, uh, up uh, in Canada, and they wrote a book, uh, Secrets of Mental Marksmanship. I wrote the forward to the latest edition of the book. I, I said in the book, uh, the best. it says on the cover, best book I've read in 30 years. If I could steal one book on the planet, put my name on it, call my next book, this would be the one. And the Secrets of Mental Marksmanship is basically the textbook for performance psychology. You could use it for your kid's soccer team. But for every aspect of performance psychology, and they got this incredible model that was in every aspect. They give a military example, a law enforcement example, a hunting example, and a competitive shooting example. They're both world championship shooters and coaches. They're uh, hunters and hunting guides. He's a combat vet. They're military trainers. They're law enforcement trainers. And these incredible examples, this, uh, this, these, these examples in, in four different fields for every aspect of performance psych, this is cutting-edge stuff. In the military today, we talk about warrior athletes. And, and every one of your listeners out there, you are the coach for a professional team. You are professional athletes. You are paid for physical performance under stress. And, and your, your city's pro team, your county's pro team, in a game where we lose, people die. And so this idea of strip mining that stuff is so important in, in applying that, uh, that, that vast field. But the other thing is, uh, is reality-based uh, uh, stress-induced training. If you're a firefighter, you'd have to face real burning alley fire in training. We all intuitively understand you can't train a firefighter for a lifetime with flickering red lights, a fan, and some red tissue paper. Then one day he's got to walk into real fire in a life and death event for the first time. No. And if you're going to carry a gun, you have to face real burning alley bullets. And, uh, and, and the, the dynamics on that uh, is, is overwhelming. And, and I like to give people a case study. I'm NYPD. 35,000 gun toters. So you're looking at a, a statistical end of 35,000. NYPD uh, puts the force on force engagements. And most of our listeners understand, you got a real gun in your hand. You pull the trigger. There's a flash and a bang. What leaves the rail is not a chunk of lead, but plastic marking capsule. 
leaves the rail at 350, 400 feet per second. If it hits you in the hand, does it hurt? It's good. Pain is good. Firefighters face real burning. Fire, we face real lowry bullets. NYPD puts this training in place the following year. They fire half as many shots and get three times many hits. A six-fold increase in performance. They're not perfect, but the day the state of New York says you are negligent to give anybody a gun and not give them this force-on-force training. And I give a case study, make it come alive. Uh, Jennifer Fulford, Orlando, Florida. A, uh, a mom in Orlando parks her minivan in the garage, goes in the house for a minute, leaving two little kids in the van. Armed home invaders take mom hostage. One of the kids in the van dials 911, said, bad guy's got my mommy. Cops are responding. One of the responders is Deputy Jennifer Fulford. Jennifer told me, she said, you know, if RoboCop shoves his head in the van, says, come with me, kids, you peel him off the ceiling. One of our female warriors says, come with me, kids, a good chance they will. She said, it's just something that we can bring to the table that the guys can't. But Jennifer said, I'll go in the garage and get the kids. As Deputy Jennifer Fulford goes in the garage one direction, three armed home invaders came in the garage from the other direction. And the gunfight that follows, they catch Jennifer in a crossfire. Deputy Jennifer Fulford is shot 10 times. Three bullets stop a body armor equipment, seven bullets punch her body. Early in the gunfight, Jennifer's right arm is disabled by a bullet. Drops the gun at the right hand, picks her left hand, and kills the SOB that shot her. It's only fair. Non-dominant hand, one-handed, precise, accurate fire, game over. As the second one is sinking slugs in her, Jennifer does a left-handed, one-handed reload under fire and kills the second one. Game over. Third one, wisely runs like hell, later surrenders. Now Jennifer's shot to bits. Seven bullets punch her body, both legs pretty much disabled, propping against wall, one arm disabled, about one functioning limb, two bleeding out and dying bad guys, gun smoke, shell casings, uh, all, everything just took seconds. Another cop, just second fighter, comes rushing in, gun in head, said, Jennifer, you okay? She said, I'm like, no. He said, get me out of here. How do you do that? Steely calm, precise, accurate fire, left-handed, one-handed, leader on the fire. Well, Jennifer was in my class a year after the end, fully recovered, back on the job a year later. She told me she got married six months after the incident. She said she's a glutton for punishment. Now, I, I tell my class, the most famous gunfire in the Old West, Wyatt Earp, right? Uh, okay, Corral, ha, Wyatt Earp needed Doc Holliday and two brothers take out three bad guys at the Okay Corral. Jennifer did it all by herself. Like most heroes, she's very humble. She's got a very important point. She said, I am a product of my training. We did our force-on-force engagements, and I was hit, and I was hit. My trainer said, don't you stop. We don't give you permission to die. We don't train you to fail. Keep going. And she said, drill me, drill me, and take a bullet and drive it on. It hurt. They drilled me, drilled me, and left-handed one had reloads. And here's the magic words. She said, when the real thing happened, it was less stressful than the first time I did it in training. That's the definition of stress inoculation. When the real thing happened, it was less stressful than the first time I did it in training. And that's our goal is to develop that level of performance in these violent times, use every tool available to us, in this zero defects environment, the airline pilots are trained endlessly in the simulator. We must do our simulators as well, not just force some force engagement. But here's the key. Don't stop when the bad guy's down. Because that trains us to crash. Secure the crime scene. Provide first aid. Call for backup. 
identify witnesses, get their names. You're a tactical team that just swept through this house. You captured and cuffed the bad guys. Provide medical support. In 360 security, a bad guy can come in the back door anytime now. Be ready for that. Uh, uh, liquids, ammo, equipment, uh, uh, and, and begin the whole process of processing the people that you just arrested. That The training doesn't stop. So you're in the simulator. You stop the bad guy. He's down. We're not done. Well, we provide first aid, call for backup, uh, secure the perimeter, identify witnesses, uh, uh, do all the things you would have to do, train all the way through the event. Because the, the one major flaw in our force-on-force engagements with our, our simulator is we'd say, okay, bad guy's down. Now what? No, no, no. We're not done yet. And then when you've done all those other things, the most important part of the training process happens when you do the debriefing. The military knows that the vast majority of the learning in a training event happens afterwards, what we call the AAR, the after action review, the debrief. When it's a life and death event, it's even more important to capture those lessons and fill in the memory gaps and sort out the memory distortions. The research data on memory gaps and memory distortions, tunnel vision, slow motion time, all in my book on combat, uh, the, the, the things that happen to people in these life and death events, half of all trained seasoned cops had blackouts. And so uh, to the final point of all of this, in Texas, it's a law. Everybody else, it's just common sense. The, the officer has the right to see every video before they make their statement. They got memory gaps. They got memory distortions. They make a, a written statement. I got to live with that in court. And you set yourself up for failure. So this is the whole dynamic. Do that realistic training, simulator, and force-on-force engagements. Train all the way through. Then do your debriefing and fill in the memory gaps, sort out the memory distortions, apply the lessons learned, and, uh, and, and prepare to survive and thrive these desperate violent times. It's really interesting to me. I had a really, really good conversation with uh, an ex-SEAL. His name is Dave Rutherford. And when when we were having our discussion, uh, this kind of came up in, in a different context. But we basically said how, you know, with with the teams, you know, there isn't when when they're on an operation or when they're in training, nobody's nobody's shaking hands or high fiving or stopping anything until they're already back at home after the debrief. You know, they're back on base everything's done and you you have to finish absolutely everything first before you get a second to relax and yes. i think that's and and i mean if we take you know obviously there is a ton of different types of um operators and groups that that do this type of training and work that are very 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 high level um but if you take those examples and and we always we always equate our special operators as kind of the the top tier as hey this is where we want to get to right as and yeah. oh, the conspiracy of competence one of the two places where the good people gravitate exactly to. and and when we take that though and we take it from training i mean the biggest thing that i would think of is you know we just did a we just did a round table on officer involved shootings and and one of the things um, we had two two guys on there uh Jim Glennon and Chris Luzo both were in in uh officer involved shooting incidents. Um, and both had basically said, you know, all of, there was all the physiological, uh, psychological things that had happened during the firefight. And when, when it, when it was all said and done, we also talked about should 
officers be allowed to review video. And so we talked about it from a legal standpoint. We talked about it from a uh, a a pure physiological or uh, remembering standpoint from from your mindset and, and what your memory allows you to to do and how your memory functions. When we talk about that, though, why isn't that more at the forefront of training right now? And I, it, I'm I would I don't want to you know I don't want to be at risk of saying something incorrectly here, but when we talk about these top tier teams everybody who does like the guys run their training themselves the guys that run the training have been through it they've done it themselves right they've been in firefights they've been deployed they've been on on these missions they've gone through it themselves so when they teach the new crop that comes through they have that experience to draw from when we talk about law enforcement training and depending on the size of your agency and what specialty you're in they may not have that luxury of having somebody who has been through those incidents. How do we bridge the gap so that the instructor that's teaching the material, even though they haven't gone through it themselves, is able to confidently and competently relay that information correctly to those new officers? You know, I heard a, a military guy one time talk about his first combat. He was a, a senior officer at the time. And he said it was so above all the other responses to combat, there was intense sense that I've been here before. And afterwards he realized I had read about it so many times. I talked to so many people who've been in combat that when it actually happened, it, it was like something I'd already done before. And I tell you that we can't control whether or not we're in that life and death event and never let anybody diminish you because you'd not personally done it. You know, we live in times we've got 17 years of war. My war was the Cold War. You know, I came in in 1974, came out in 97. And and basically nothing happened through through that period of time. You know, Gulf One was four days. Panama was a day. Grenada was a day. If you'd have done them all, they wouldn't add up to a week. Uh, but, But during that time, we still had people training and sustaining. We had deep roots in our history and our knowledge. And, you know, I, I talk about, you know, the, another dynamic. I said, you know, the, the mental health professional. Does the doc who treats you gunshot wound have been shot? What do you think? Never been shot before? You can't treat my gunshot wound. Well, we can all agree that's crazy. The shrink who helps you if whatever happened did not have been where you are to help. Huh? You know, but I am, you can't help me. That's a cop out. That's a pity party. And, and some of the greatest in that field, the vast majority of them never been in a life and death event, and yet they're of enormous value. And, and so uh, this, this dynamic that we have to have uh, been there, you know, after 19 years of war, all the teams have that luxury. Well, that luxury is going to go away, hopefully, in a generation. But I hope we don't keep being at war for another 20 years. If we do, life goes on. But uh, that luxury of having all these combat experienced people going to go away. Uh, and we got to sustain it ourselves. I'll give you an angle on this. I talk about about marksmanship being such a critical dynamic. Uh, I enlisted in the Army in 1974. My dad was a cop. And all of our law enforcement leaders were World War II veterans. This is right at the end of the World War II veterans' contributions in the 1970s. Our chiefs, our sergeants, our captains, our sheriffs, the vast majority of them were World War II vets. And they were growing old. But every back in those days, 
everybody had a pistol team. And it's all gone. They had pistol trophies and pistol competitions and jackets and patches. It's all gone. People don't even remember it. But that's what the World War II vets knew. They said they knew we'll grow old and we'll grow fat, but we can still be one hell of a shot. I tell people, you got every, every excuse for going old. You got pretty good excuse for putting on weight as years go by. There's no excuse for not being a hell of a shot. And when the last of the World War II vets were going away, when we entered into this realm, when all of our knowledge was secondhand, the thing that they were trying to tell us, the thing they honored above all else, they didn't have tag teams back in those days. They had the roly-poly little guy on the pistol team. I use the examples of uh, Officer Greg Stevens, May of 2015, draw the Prophet Muhammad Art Festival outside of Dallas, Texas. In the eyes of Islam, to draw the Prophet is a terrible crime. And they're afraid to draw bad guys, and it did. Two art critics from Arizona showed up with AK-47s and body armor. It could have been the Pulse nightclub times two, body armor, rifles, that element of surprise. They rolled out of the vehicle and a 59-year-old traffic cop with a Glock pistol killed them both. One of the greatest acts of marksmanship and valor in American history. And I go through this firefight in, in great detail in my class. This man's performance from 40 feet away, over 30 rounds were rifle fire fired at him. They don't hit once. He didn't virtually every shot fired from 40 feet away. Uh, and, uh, and, he told me, you know, he, he wasn't a SWAT dog. He wasn't a competitive shooter. But his department had open range at least once a month. And he'd been on the department for 37 years. And every time the range was open, he was there. I, I, you're not on your own. You're, you're, you're not paying yet. You're off duty. Why do you go to the range right now? Because I'm a Texas cop. I live on dirt. And ammo's expensive. The range's open. Ammo's free. Be there. And I, how, how, how much golfing could he have done? Say, you know, one Saturday a month for 37 years. How much time could he have spent with his family? Roughly one Saturday a month. He didn't always make it, but he always tried to. Uh, it's Sometimes the greatest love is not to sacrifice your life, but to live a life of sacrifice. All those people that encountered that violent event, they had not been there before. Some of them had not been trained by people who had been there. But they read and they learned and they immersed themselves in it. And they sought that training. Like Greg Stevens, 37 years, I'd never been in a, never fired his weapon in a life and death event, uh, uh, not a SWAT dog. All he ever wanted to do was work the streets. But when the time came, he wasn't sitting in his vehicle in the hot Texas sun. He didn't have a head down at his cell phone. He was doing his job. It was an off-duty job. It was a detail to provide security on the southern interest of this thing. He could have been sitting in his car. Nobody would have said anything. He could have had his head down on his cell phone. Nobody would have said anything. But he was doing his job. He had his head up. He had his eyes open. If he'd have been in his car, those idiots, those two would have murdered him in his car with a hail of bullets. He had never seen, never seen it coming. He was standing there watching. A, a, a car with out-of-state plates screeches a halt. Both doors pop open and boom. He's already in position one. Got a good firm grip on his weapon. Uh, you know, he was paying attention. He was tuned in. And he'd sought training every opportunity that he could. So we're not always going to have the, the privilege of having been in a life and death event before we teach. We're not always going to have people who've been there to teach us. But we can train and we can draw on as many resources as we can. We can have professional development reading programs and, and we can 
get inside the minds of those who've been there before. And we can sit down with a beer with the people who've been there and pick their brains and, and, and constantly strive to uplift ourselves and to build on that. And the bottom line is, uh, is, is to seek that training, even if you have to have your own time and your own money. Sometimes the greatest love is not to sacrifice your life, but to live a life of sacrifice. Officer Greg Stevens sacrificed some of his own time and his own money for 37 years on a steady basis, made a deposit in a savings account. In May of 2015, he made a major withdrawal. How's your savings account look? Have you been pissing your time away? Have you been pissing your money away? Are you seeking hobbies that reinforce your survival skills? And and so, that, you know, that, that's one of the lessons we try to apply in the classes, uh, that, that things in this world you can control and things you can't control. And whether or not you've been in a life and death combat event, it's something you cannot control. But you can control training. You can control these opportunities to use your skills in a life and death event when the moment comes because you've trained for a lifetime. Does, does that make sense? Um, yeah, it, I'm so glad. And the reason I asked you is because, I mean, if you and I are, are right on the same line when it comes to what should be inherent in everybody who, you know, swears an oath, puts on a uniform and then becomes an instructor is that training doesn't stop when you you're the course ends. In in fact, you know, when you, when you take a training course and you do your, your 40 hours, 80 hours, whatever your one day in service, that's the start. And it's just kind of like with falling back to martial arts, right? You know, they always say when, yeah. when you get your black belt, that's just the start of your journey. And same thing for trainers and instructors is that when we, when you become an instructor, that's the start. Like you have to realize that you're at, you're at square one and the, the continuous learning is, and unfortunately the way, the way it is for most people is we have to spend our own time and our own money to get that additional training. But there, there's so many resources out now, right? I mean, there's so many free resources. There's podcasts like this one. There's there's so many different things. There's so many instructors that are so high level that put their stuff out there for free just and say, yeah, hey, listen, yeah. here's something that we're doing. Take it, run with it, use it. And yeah. I think I think yeah. that's what we really want to start driving home with people is get, there's so much access to this information. And if you're not spending your own time to do this outside of work, then maybe, and I'm not saying for everybody, but you know, there's probably a certain group that maybe should reconsider being in that role because there's, there's an inherent responsibility that comes with that title. Yeah. Two, two angles on that, Adam. Um, first off, you know, I, I tell people, you gotta have a life outside this job. You gotta have a hobby, but it's a very pure and beautiful thing when your hobby reinforces your survival skills. There are so many things you could be doing with your loved ones to reinforce survival skills. Hunting, I'm convinced from a lifetime of studying, hunting can be one of the most effective tools to prepare for combat. Uh, you don't hunt, go with friends who do this, see what it's about. Uh, competitive shooting, like all those World, all those World War II vets, they all had, their departments had pistol teams right up to the 1970s, you know, competitive shooting. Uh, uh, cowboy action shooting, airsoft and paintball. Can't buy ammo, can't afford ammo, airsoft, paintball. My grandkids, I'd sit on the dock and throw pine cones in the water and shoot it with a pellet pistol for hours. And the, uh, you know, martial arts, incredibly valuable set of skills. And I tell people, if your hobby doesn't have survival skills, at least for Lord's sake, let your hobby have cardio demand, running, swimming, basketball, softball, tennis have cardio demands. You got a motto that runs through my class. It's kind of fun. And it's, it's, it's a, you know, a, a piss on golf, you know, uh, 
the golf course is a willful and deliberate misuse of a of a rifle range. You know, there, 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 there's no cardio demands on the golf course. There's no survival skill in the golf course. It, uh, you know, it's a it's a it's a waste of a perfectly good rifle range. And uh, you know, we we tease our golfers. One of the things that bring up my class, and sometimes our golfers are best shots. You know, and but they they can laugh at themselves and, and tell them you see a cop with golf clubs, yeah. Look at them and wave at them and tell them something for me. Bah, bah. Let the sheep go graze on the golf course. We ain't got time to piss away. We got money to piss away on decadent, trivial events. So the, the first thing on that, but second angle on on training. Uh, I I grew up with the martial arts. I love the martial arts. Uh, I love the dojo. I turned eighteen and my martial art became the army. You know the, the rifle and the pistol. But for years I've heard about the martial art of the firearm. Uh, a guy who was a World War II ranger right at the very end of the war, the most decorated Alaska state trooper, high-level martial artist in multiple fields. He's one of only 30-odd grandmaster pistol shots on the planet. Uh, it, it was uh, Jeff Hall. And he resurrected the Japanese art of the firearm, which was banished in the mid-1880s because you know, they were good with matchlock muskets. But when it came to repeating firearms, it threatened the samurai way of life, and they banned firearms in the mid-1880s. So he resurrected its hojutsu, H-O-J-U-T-S-U, hojutsu.com. And, uh, and I've been looking forward to this forever. I, I came to, he does three-day weekends across America, and it was a beautiful, one of the best three days you'll ever have. I'm training one coming up in July. Once a year, I try to peel loose and be there for one of them. But uh um, and I showed up for the first time. I thought I was good. I'm gun side trained, front side trained, military trained, you know, a little competitive shooting. And you shoot for your belt. And by the skin of my teeth, I made my brown belt. And I trained for two years to get my black belt. I knew what shots I was missing. I knew what time hacks I was missing. And, and there's in America, supposedly there's 20 million Americans of the martial arts. Only a couple of thousand actively compete. You know, we, we're just not into, you know, bowling leagues and competition is, is, is part of our heritage that much. But striving for that next belt, striving for the next level of personal performance, that's something people can wrap their mind around. And, and it's one of the things I recommend is hujitsu is, is a tool to, uh, I think it's cutting edge. I think it's taken off. I think it's where we're going. And uh, those of you that want to get your on the ground floor, I'd, I'd encourage you to take a look at the website and seek some of that training. I'll be like I said, there's one in uh, in Indiana that I'll be there in July as kind of the guest instructor in part, uh, and just imparting a few little words in a, and, and being on the range at the Fellowship of Gunpowder, uh, and uh, and then and keep pushing that envelope. Seek that training and and uh, and believe in who you are. Believe in what you do. These are dark and desperate times. Your grandchildren will look back at you like we talk about Wyatt Earp with two cause for you man the ramparts of civilization in a dark and desperate time. And the worse it gets, the more determined we are to walk out that door and give 100% because we love our children. We love our grandchildren. We love our way of life. We love our nation. And the worse it gets, the more determined we are to give it all we got. I love it. I love it. If If you had one thing that you would want to share with law enforcement and law enforcement trainers. And like, if, if, like, if any one of them heard one thing from you all year, what would it be? You know, kind of, I'll step back and reframe that question. It is a broader dynamic that I try to give people to look, look beneath the surface. And we talk about the murder rate and we don't even begin to understand 
that it completely misrepresents the problem. I once said, tell you that, boom, you got it, right? Medical technology, a cop slaps on a tourniquet, he's prevented a murder. 20 cops a day slap on a tourniquet, we cut the murder right in half. And, and so look beneath the surface of things when, when we look and study and, and find these opportunities to hang on to them. And we talk about training and we, we, we understand we got to look beneath the surface at the ones who are succeeding. And what have they done? They've done training on their own. They, they, they've used their own resources, their own time to build and prepare for this moment of truth. Uh, you know, look beneath the surface. And, uh, and uh, I, I hope I'll be remembered as a guy who saw things clearly. I wrote the book on killing. You know, that people talk about killing. They, they point to some horrible crime. Oh, that, that proves we're all killers. No, that's an outlier. It's literally one a million. You explained to me the 99.9% of our citizens go a lifetime. Never kill anybody or even seriously attempt to. Explain that. The world looks at this outlier, this one in a million terrible crime. Let's look at all the ones, of a lifetime of provocation, divorce, layoffs, infidelity, traffic accidents, and only the most remote fraction of our citizens will even attempt to take a human life. Explain that. So look beneath the surface at everything. Look at the, the vast majority who don't. That was on killing. Look at what's happened to people on life and death event. That was my book uh, on combat. And the, and, the, and the murder rate misrepresents the situation. Look at what these video games and the social media, they're doing to our kids. My book, Assassination Generation, I gave a copy to the president. I was invited to the White House, head of the Parkland School Massacre. I gave a copy to the vice president, Assassination Generation, I'm trying to look deeper into that. Uh, I've got a book coming out uh, in about a year. Uh, it's, it's already at the publisher. It's on killing remotely. It's about the drones and drone dynamics and what this warfare is doing. Uh, we had a case. We had one of our one of our our predator operators. He kind of went off the deep end and escaped. He was a he was an Air Force officer, low ranking officer, and uh, and he was seen. And his Jeep is kind of a survival outdoor guy in another Air Force base. And so the security force on that Air Force base joined the deputies hunting down this deputy who, or this, this Air Force officer who's gone rogue. He's killed somebody. He's being hunted down. And this guy had been using Predator and Reapers, uh, whacking bad guys, you know, around the world. And, and, and we don't want you to get a bad opinion of them by this one example, but this weird dynamic of which the, the, the deputies were using a drone to find this guy. And the security force, Air Force security force, oh, we need drones. Wow, this is incredible. And so here's this drone operator. He's in an ambush position, going to go out in a blaze of fire and kill these cops. And he looks up and he sees the drone and he kills himself. I think of, think of the bizarre irony of all this. He's a drone operator. He's gone off the drop deep end. He's killed people with drones. Uh, he's uh he, he's he's, uh, he's 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 going to go out in a blaze of fire and murder a bunch of cops. He sees this drone and he realizes the gig is up. So this whole drone warfare has changed the world. I've got a book talking about that coming out. I've got a book that I hope will come out in a couple of years, maybe two. It takes a long time to get a book off the ground called Unhunting and the Psychology, Physiology, and Ecology of the Modern Hunter. And it's going to be an important book. It will bring aspects of that. Just, so we try to look deeper beneath the surface uh, uh, on spiritual combat, if you really want to be informed and, and, and widespread, you you got to look at that spiritual side of the world and the book on spiritual combat. So wherever you go, whatever you do, look beneath the surface of things. Look at the way it once was and ask yourself, why isn't it like that now? 
The World War II veterans were running the show and they honored marksmanship above all else. LAPD had a bonus for qualifying expert. The bonus is still there. It still adds up about $300 a, a, a year. And $300 a year is not, not, not chump change. But back in the 50s when they were doing it, it was a lot of money. And, and, and if, if LAPD still has a bonus for marksmanship, maybe, maybe they knew something that we've forgotten. I tell my chiefs, I tell my sheriffs, you know, take your, take your next pay raise and roll it into a marksmanship bonus. And have the range open a couple of times a month and watch them start coming to the range and watch them start striving to qualify expert. And there's this old myth out there. Well, you know, your your record says you're expert. Why didn't you shoot him in the hand? That's not true. It's never happened. Even if it does happen, it's just not that big a deal. Uh, strive for expert qualification. Those World War II vets knew what they were doing. Honor that. Put together that that that, that bonus for qualifying expert. See what the old timers do when, when they were in the middle of combat and they were driving the train and, uh, and, and think what wisdom they have to impart upon us and uh, try to look beneath the surface of things. Think a little bit deeper. And I'll give you one last example to top this all off with. Uh, the necktie. You know, the, the necktie, fashions come and go, but the necktie has been there for over 100 years. It starts at your crotch. It comes up to your neck. It's got a big knob on top. It's a dick. It's a freaking dick. Your necktie is just a dick. <laughs> and a and hundred years from now, they're going to look at all the people. They're all wearing dicks. Look at them. They got this dick. They're all wearing this dick. You know, this big red power tie against a white background with a big knob on top, you know. And, and, and I tell my, I, and, and it works. You know, women never wear a tie. When they do, it's demeaning and degrading. See, what we got underneath all of us is the monkey brain, right? And the monkey brain answers the front door and two detectives in a suit with a tie. And the monkey brain goes, ooh, 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 and it works. The reason why it's hung around for over 100 years is it works. And, and, and so, uh, you know, you stand up in front of cops with a tie on, you push cops and push back again. So, you know, the, the guy, you know, his cops are in training outfits. You know, they come to training. Very few of them wear a tie. And the trainer steps up there with a big tie and jacket on. Yeah, yeah, that's the wrong message. You're pushing them, and cops push back. You gotta, you gotta look at the uniform, and you know. And then we we all go to the dinner party. We wear our bow ties, right? We wear our tuxedos. We get all suave and de boner, you know. And we, and we, uh, we wear our tuxedos while we're the bow tie. What's that say? Oh, I'm not playing the game, you know. We're we're relaxed. We're the whole posturing thing is gone, you know. And, and of course, uh, you know, cowboys they wear the old string tie. You know, they say, "I'm not playing your game. I got my dick right here in the holster, baby. This is my." Dick competition, you know, but, but we look around us and uh, we see the ties a hundred years from now. You're going to say, were they all insane? Couldn't they see it? And I want to go on record being the first one to say, hey, dudes, why, why are we all wearing these dicks? <laughs> and once you see what it is, you, you'll, you'll never see it the same again. And, and you never see a, a guy reach up and adjust his tie the same way. You never see a woman reach up and adjust the tie. I got a collection of pictures of women adjusting the guy's tie and the guy's got this goofy grin on his face and the, you know, and, and again, just look beneath the surface of things. Why Why has the necktie been there for over 100 years? Why do we keep sustaining that? Why don't women wear it? What happens when we wear the bow tie? What happens? Look beneath the surface of things and understand that there's a whole lot more going on out there than what we're seeing. And, and be on record as the kind of people that, that, that are striving for deeper knowledge and going on record as, uh, as being the one that, uh, that looked at things a little more deeply. And, and, uh, and these desperate times when things are coming unglued all around us. We, we need that, uh, the Renaissance man. We need that deep thinker all around us. I call this warrior Renaissance and you 
Now, the people who are listening to this podcast, you are part of a revolution, a renaissance in knowledge. We've learned more about the reality of combat in the last 50 years than the previous 5,000 years put together. Do you ever wonder what it was like to be in the Renaissance? You know, nothing changed for the surf in the field. For the first part of it, they didn't have a word for it. Just things were happening. This is what it feels like. You and this podcast and me and your listeners, we're part of a warrior Renaissance. In these dark and desperate times, warriors rise to the challenge. Future generations will truly talk about you. Like we talk about Wyatt Earp with two cars. But they're going to laugh when they see pictures of you with that dick on. And they're going to say, couldn't they see what was happening? Did they see it? No, they didn't. We look at the, you know, we look at the Elizabethan time. They're all wearing these big cod pieces. You know, they big cod piece. Like, you know, someone might shove a sock in the front of their swimsuit, right? They're all wearing these cod pieces. You know, did they know what they were doing? Could they really see it? And I think if we look at the necktie, no, no, they, they weren't seeing that. Look beneath the surface of things and the, Dig a little deeper and, and be part of this warrior renaissance. Seek the, the books, the training, the knowledge, the podcasts, and, uh, and, and, and man the ramparts of our civilization with courage and honor in a dark and desperate time. And, and believe in who you are, believe in what you do. I have I have nowhere to go from dick tie, so I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna leave it there. Um, if if somebody wants to find you, killology dot com, and and for and, and real quickly, I do let's touch on this real quick. Killology is a it's a it's an area of study that you that you you founded essentially, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we got sexology, suicidology. Uh, and, uh, and you know, the scholarly study of killing. It was initially outlined in my book on killing. Half a million copies sold in English, uh, translated into eight different languages uh, on killing. Google Scholar says it has been cited in over uh, 2,500 scholarly works, one of the great scholarly, you know, foundations of our time on, on killing. And I coined the term killology. And that resistance to killing, the reason why, 99.9% of our citizens go a lifetime of provocation and never even seriously attempt to take a human life. And how that resistance has to be turned off in military and law enforcement and how the video games doing the same thing with our kids. So yeah, that, and then and like the book on combat, I just mentioned in passing, I think I'm the first person at combatology. And on combat really is, you know, what's actually happening, not the act of killing, lawful killing, that's killology, but auditory exclusion, slow motion time, aftermath dynamics, proper preparation. That's all combatologists. And and you and I, we're combatologists, you know, we're, we're in, and so the, the training for combat, that's, that's combatology, you know. So I coined a couple of terms out there for what it's worth. Killology in particular is kind of taken off and, uh, you know, you can't deny it. It's, it's an area in need of academic study. And, uh, and a lot of people have followed up on it since then. And, uh, and it's part of this warrior renaissance, these ameri- amazing times when we uh, we really apply the, the nuts and bolts uh, uh, and look deeper into the topic of killing. How could we have how could we have gone all these centuries of gunpowder, 500 years of gunpowder combat and not let people know about auditory exclusion? Hey, in the gunfight, the shots are really get muted. How could we have had 500 freaking years of gunpowder combat and not know that? So this is the things that are coming out there. This is this dynamic in which we're really wrapping our mind around the reality of combat. They're exciting times. It's the worst of times. It's the best of times. Violence all around us. Uh, you know, here we are in the middle of the first many quarantines, I think, maybe coming down the road. Uh, uh, the future ones may be far worse than this. Uh, 
Uh, we're, we're in amazing times, and yet it's the worst of times, it's the best of times. And there are heroes that rise to the challenge in this dark and desperate time and, uh, and, uh, and stand up and be counted and man the ramparts of our civilization as a, as a sheepdog uh, protecting the flock in a dark and desperate hour. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time and, and joining me and, and chatting with me on the podcast. And uh, I'm excited to to work with you in the future. And I, it honored. Honored is the best word to, to have for, for having you on the show. That goes the other way around. It truly is. Bible says, um, as iron sharpens iron, so does one warrior uphold another. And it truly is a two-way street. Brother. Everything I have, I have because I've talked to people like you across the years and continue the process. Thank you, sir. We'll talk soon. All right, that wraps up my conversation with Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman. If you want to check out more about what he's doing, go to killology.com. Again, that link will be in the show notes page here for you, and you can find out all about his new book on spiritual combat. So if you've enjoyed this, you find this information actionable and useful, please consider subscribing to the podcast if you have not already. If you have an extra second, leave a rating or review. That would be great. And I look forward to seeing you next time on the Tactical Breakdown Podcast. Thanks for being here. Until next time, stay safe.